0: Hello and welcome to Back Talk, the show where two feminist people talk about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media and all the way from Mississippi, it's Amy Lamb.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm Amy Lamb. I am the contributing editor at Bitch Media and I am all the way in Mississippi sitting in my closet again. <laughs> the fanciest podcast studio ever.
0: <laughs> um, you're on week three or four of your MFA program. Oh no, it's it's like... I think week seven? I don't even know. I
1: can't even keep track.
0: How does it's... time pass so quickly?
1: I, uh, I mean, like, ask my readings about it, because I haven't really done enough of them. Like, don't tell anybody. But <laughs> <laughs> How, yeah. is,
0: I just imagine you in your house with, like, stacks of paper piling up everywhere. Like, stuff you're supposed to read, stuff you're writing, just, like, surrounded by paper. No furniture, lots of paper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the no furniture part is real, because I'm still, like, buying and assembling stuff, but... Um, I do have a lot, I just have, my life is kind of messy right now because everything's like, not everything's unpacked and I'm just still trying to like, get a hold of like, Good responsible time management as a grad student who's also freelancing and um, being in a new place. But I just like you know what my problem is as like I am like the best time waster that's ever existed. <laughs> if, if there were awards given out for wasting time, I would win every one of them.
0: What's your preferred method of wasting
1: time? Um. Okay. This sounds so terrible. But because like I think I remember once that you told me that you you called me a nester. Uh (laughs) I like to nest and I was thinking about that I'm like I think that's really true because I really want like my home or like wherever I am to feel comfortable so then I can get work done so I think because I feel like kind of uncomfortable um because my house isn't like in order or whatever uh so I'm like trying to find things for my house like so I'm like on all these like random websites trying to find like a nice comforter or like a good affordable rug uh or (laughs) like a throw pillow or like I'm like who am I what is going on you know so I'm, I waste so much time doing that. So I really need to get my house in order so I can get my life in order. I think I, that's my issue.
0: I totally get that. Like obsessing over throw pillows as a procrastination tool. I. That's why I I cannot work from home. I can't work from home because <laughs> cause I can find so many excuses to not do the work I'm doing. I'm like, oh, I could write this article that's really difficult to write. But first, like clearly I need to sweep the floor or I need to do all these dishes. Or I need to rearrange this thing in the house because I can't get I can't get any work done when that's happening. And it's really it's just a those those tasks are like easy and and kind of fun to do because they're like achievable versus like the hard mental and emotional work of writing stuff. You
1: know? Yeah, like you bring up a really good point. That's exactly what it is. Cause I I realize I do that. I'm like last night I have I had like five things to do, but I was like, let me put away all of these pieces of cardboard boxes. You know, like because <laughs> because breaking down cardboard boxes doesn't take a a lot of like um uh, mental energy. It's just like a physical thing you can do while you're doing like nothing pretty much. So I just need to I just need
0: to focus. I don't yeah. know what's wrong. With <laughs> Um okay well let's see let's talk about our favorite piece of pop culture this week. Mine is in a similar mode of mindless things at your recommendation. I started watching The Great British Bake Off. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> that show is so good. And this is I I find it really funny because I don't like reality shows. I don't bake. And, like, I don't eat any of the food that they are making on the show, you know? And so I was like, why why is this so compelling? <laughs> I wound up watching, <laughs> I wound up, like, um, I was watching a really stressful show, Mr. Robot, which uh-huh. is kind of like, I, I feel queasy about watching it. It's kind of like a mix of Fight Club and V for Vendetta with all of the problems of both of those. But anyway, I'm watching it. And... <laughs> So to like like detox from that, I was like, I need something that's just like simple and fun, and I was like the Great British Bake Off, and so uh, I turned it on. on It's on Netflix. The fifth season is on Netflix, and. I think the show works because it's just regular people on TV. First of all, it's not like American reality shows where, like, everybody is a supermodel fitness trainer. They're just, like, regular down-to-earth people. And then also, it's really positive. It's hosted by two female comedians. And whenever anybody is, is kicked off the show, because they kick off one contestant every week who, like, you know, they do this baking challenge, and the person who doesn't bake it the best is kicked off. But on American reality shows, it's, like... It's like, this person's a loser, and you'll never see them again. And on The Great British Bake Off, everyone like, hugs them and is like, oh, you're so great in so many ways. Like, Thanks for being on the show. It's really sweet. Yeah, and, and
1: the host sometimes will like help the contestants in in a non cheating way, you know, or like or give them words of encouragement, or like if they're really stressed out, they'll like stand next to them, and be like, "Okay, you got this." Like, let's let's really think it through. Like, you don't have to freak out. So uh-huh. it's
0: yeah, it's really sweet, sweet show. It's, it's really supportive. And I was re- doing some Wikipedia reading about it, and the 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 season that's on Netflix right now that Americans are watching and becoming obsessed with is actually the fifth season of the show from the BBC. And it got it's a, it's this season got like a bunch of complaints from viewers for the comedians who are the hosts being too racy or edgy, and like <laughs> and making like they make like some sexual humor they make like some some kind of like yeah they make some, some kind of sexy digs, and of course this is the season that the BBC that, that is airing on American Netflix right now they're like oh it's it's too hot for the BBC the Americans will love it. <laughs> <laughs> So our anyway.
1: our, r- our racy meter is maybe slightly different from like British <laughs> sensibilities. <laughs> maybe. Um, so, my favorite pop culture thingy uh, this week is that uh, a bunch of my shows, I mean, they recently premiered maybe like in the last month or so um, that I really love, like um, Project Runway, one of my favorite reality TV shows, um, RuPaul's Drag Race, and uh, How to Get Away with Murders back on the air. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like the vampire tonation to that. Yeah. Make it sound uh, like a vampire show.
1: And because I don't have like antenna TV, I don't have cable TV, I have to like watch everything a day later um so i am watching all my new shows and i'm super excited about them they're really engaging um and then, and then there are also some other shows that I'm hoping to start watching, so when I do, I will mention them, but so far, like, How to Get Away with Murder is looking really good and juicy, and maybe there are, like, a couple new cast members, um, and in Project Runway, there's already, like, some great conflict happening and super fun designers on there, and as usual, like, RuPaul's Drag Race is just messy and and still fun, so <laughs> it's just, I, maybe that's, I'm also killing time doing that while mm-hmm. I'm not doing homework, so I need I need to focus, Sarah, that's what I'm
0: Very important project runway watching. I actually I follow the person who won Project Runway last year. I think we talked about her, but on the show, her name is Ashley Tipton, and um, she is an awesome designer. I'm not even a big Project Runway fan, but I started watching last season because she's so cool. She's like a Latina, Southern Californian, plus size designer, and um, since watching the show, I followed her on Instagram, and now, and now I feel like I'm a sophisticated fashion person because. (laughs) Because I like follow her and I see fashion stuff in my feed. Um, she's really cool. Her designs are like like um, lots of pastel colors, flowers, super feminine, and all plus size. So that's really cool to see.
1: Yeah, she has such like amazing taste with color. Like I really applaud her use of color and she's such she's got a great eye.
0: So hopefully there's somebody that's as interesting in the season too. We'll
1: see. Yeah, so I'm I'm waiting. I, I haven't picked my favorite contestant yet, so I think I think they're gonna start bubbling to the surface, and I'll have somebody to like root for. All right, so with our first segment, we're going to be talking about um, kind of like uh, white responses to being called out on. Putting out racist shit, or having like, <laughs> or, or having really problematic opinions about their work. Uh, so, uh, for example, the first uh, thing is that last week um, it was announced that NBC had bought a show to develop, and the show was going to be called Mail Order Family, and it was based on um, a writer and comedian's life. Her name was Jackie Clark, and it was about how the show was going to be about how there was a widower who lost his wife, and he finds a mail order bride from the Philippines, and wants her, and like have has her come over to the States to help him raise his two preteen daughters. Um, There was, like, a lot of backlash to it on Twitter, um, of claims of, like, you know, human trafficking isn't funny. And so, actually, in in that case, NBC decided to cancel the the development of the show. So that was, like, one of the, like, more positive responses. Um, But even then, like, uh, you know, their initial response to... The feedback was, you know, uh, there was an NBC spokesperson who said, quote, we purchased the pitch with the understanding that it would tell the creator's real-life experience of being raised by a strong Filipina stepmother after the loss of her own mother. And in this case, it's like about... It's still a white-centric perspective about, you know, Jackie Clark being raised by a, quote, strong Filipina stepmother. Uh, But I, I think that people were really relieved when we heard that, like, the show... Development was canceled, but then that kind of segues into like a few days later, um, Bustle uh, had a, a a piece about Tim Burton, and so it was written by Rachel Simon, and the piece was titled "Tim Burton Explains Why Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children Features a Predominantly White Cast." So, Tim Burton has a new film um, coming out, and it's like his his regular spooky, like netherworldly stuff, and I think the The writer had asked him about like what's going on with like this film being really white, and then like hint, hint how all your other past films were really white, uh-huh. and so he says that um, he kind of like like fluffed it off and saying that like everybody's being too PC nowadays, um, and that. He made a comparison to how he grew up watching Blackportation movies, and how he never like thought, oh, there should be more white people in these movies. So that was a really like <laughs> not a great reaction to this, because instead of like looking at his own work and thinking like, wow, I, I've, I've really only um, centered white characters or hired white actors. He's he's comparing it to this notion of like, yeah, well, back in the day when I watched Blackportation movies, um, there were no white characters in them, and I, you didn't hear me complaining.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think both of these really point to how there's, so the, the film and TV industry is still very predominantly run by white, straight dudes, but now at least there's avenues for, for people who are pop culture consumers to voice their ideas and opinions and express them and to actually get them heard by the people who are making those shows, you know, so it's not so like, and NBC still greenlit that pilot, but people can push back against that. And NBC actually listens to them.
1: Right. And I think, you know, the thing about um, Tim Burton making a statement like this is that like, you know, like every single day, like our list of who our problematic faves are just keeps getting longer and longer. Like we we will not have ever have enough paper to write down who all of our problematic faves are. And it really like kind of broke my heart to think of like all of the people of color or kids of color who grew up loving Tim Burton films because they were like beautiful, like beautifully fun and interesting and quirky and there's there weren't films being made like that he was making. And for all of, like for some of us who really like loves his work to think like, wow, he doesn't really, he legitimately doesn't think about us as his audience. Uh-huh. Um, because when you're saying that like I, I'm centering uh, white characters or white actors, you're like you're telling me that you don't care about like representing me on screen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that and that was like one of the weird heartbreaking moments that I thought of when I was like reading this quote from him.
0: Yeah, and it's just like a it's a case where it really points out what what people think of as normal, you know? So for Tim Burton it's like it's like why would I go beyond what I'm already doing? Why would I go out of my way to include people of color in this film? Because his world view is like whiteness is normal. This is what I put on screen. And so to to get be so I think instead of having that perspective, like filmmakers and TV creators need to start seeing like, hey, my audience is is wide and diverse just because it's white people who have been on screen predominantly. That doesn't mean that that's what should be on screen or that that's what the world sees as like representative.
1: Right. It's like um so in, in terms of you know, because I'm like in this world of literature and everything. And like so I think that in terms of literature and writing often we you know like people talk about how like oh there's a shelf for like um african-american literature or like asian-american literature or like latinx literature but like there's no shelf for white literature because that shelf is just their normal shelf. right and i think that like there's a there's a real failure to acknowledge that like um that people are telling white stories like we have to just say that very plainly um because you know i had moments where um I will have like a white woman writer friend, she'll be like, Well, I'm telling stories from like a woman's perspective. And I and I was thinking about that more and I was thinking like, Well, you're telling stories from a woman's perspective, but also from a white perspective. So I think that like it also comes to a point where white white creators have to own their whiteness and to say that like they're telling stories from a very white perspective and then to also like put themselves on like a white American shelf or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it actually brings me to talk about um uh, what happened last month at the brisbane Brisbane Writers Festival in Australia. So there's an American writer. Her name is Lionel Shriver, and uh, she gave a keynote speech. And um, the gist of her keynote speech is that she thinks um, she thinks that, like this the quote unquote cultural appropriation is uh is something that's been thrown around too much and like something that's like lobbed at white writers too often and that um it like hinders their creativity and she she thinks that it should be like something that um white writers shouldn't have to worry about and and she also did this uh keynote speech um while she was wearing a a mini sombrero for part of it I think they're like there's a picture of her floating around Twitter she's wearing this mini sombrero um I think it was an example because I think her parents had brought her brought it back to her or something from a trip to Mexico and so I think that was like her way of saying like if I don this hat like am I who am I now am I not allowed to wear this hat and it was like really really distasteful and the reason why it even um came to attention was because a writer named Yasmin Abdel Mageed um wrote about walking out on the keynote uh, for a piece on The Guardian.
0: Yeah, and the Brisbane Festival, it seems like did did a really good response where they were the people who were organizing the festival were pretty shocked by this keynote speech. They hadn't read it beforehand. And then the next day they organized like a talk back where people could could respond to the keynote speech and like made time for that at the festival, which seems pretty important. And this whole thing really blew up. But it's not. It's a. It's a. This. This is an argument that like keeps surfacing all the time in recent years, where, um, white people, writers, or politicians, or filmmakers, or TV creators, like lash out against the PC police and saying that like our culture is too PC these days. We saw this like a year ago when, um, Jerry Seinfeld was talking about how he can't perform on college campuses anymore because they're too PC, and this really ties into the same issue we were just talking about where. Like this writer and Jerry Steinfeld and Tim Burton, like don't see anything wrong with what they're doing or don't acknowledge like why, how their work leaves people out and misrepresents people.
1: Right. Like, so part of her speech, she, she, she asks like, quote, are we fiction writers to seek, quote, permission to use a character from another race or culture or to employ the vernacular of a group to which we don't belong? So she like you know she's asking this question questions like what are we supposed to like ask permission now and whenever we write out of who we are and I, I think that like most of the responses to her is like listen like you can write whatever the fuck you want like we're not trying to censor you like let's be real like nobody censors white writers like white writers have been writing like whatever the hell they wanted for, for like decades and centuries I think that I think that what's coming up now is that like people are calling them out on what they're writing and that's something that like they're very uncomfortable with Um, I think that like in the um, in uh, Lionel Shriver's latest novel, The Mandibles, there's this, um, it's, it's centered around a white family and there's this character that comes in later because, um, I think the father in the white family, uh, remarries a black woman and I think that that black woman character, because I've not read the book, um, she may have, like, dementia or something, so, uh, when they are out and about in the city, um, he has to put her on, like, a leash so that she doesn't, like, run away. Like, Uh, Does she not think that that the imagery of having like a black woman um, being tied up to a white man like this is that not like Is that not like something that's maybe irresponsible or she should have thought more about when she's representing it You know, it's like she can write whatever she wants to write But then she has to like reckon with the feedback that comes with it Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that like this is a this is a white writer who's saying that like Like why do I have to seek permission and we're more I think that a lot of people are responding to saying like You don't have to seek permission, but you have to deal with the feedback
0: yeah, I think there's really those those two issues going on here. Where one it's the same argument that comedians use around like, what I can't tell jokes about like race or rape or other controversial topics. And the answer is like, no, you can tell those jokes, but you're gonna, but you also will hear from your audience when you tell those jokes. When you makes when you make pop culture that's being consumed by an audience, like don't be surprised when you hear from your audience about how they they were offended by what, what you put out there or felt misrepresented by what you put out there. And then. There's been a big discussion among writers and filmmakers recently about ways to write about groups that aren't your own in a way that's not screwed up or relying on stereotypes. Especially white writers have to do a lot of like research and talking to people who are of the groups that they're writing about to make sure that they're not misrepresenting their characters or relying on really old stereotypes or you know bringing up images that to those readers would be like, whoa, what are you doing? And so I really think that it requires, I think that white writers should really uh, feel like it's part of their job to do research about the kinds of characters that they're writing and putting out there, including looking at race and, and culture.
1: Right. So, um, some of the really great responses to the Lionel Shriver speech, um, like one of them was from a writer named Caitlin Greenidge, um, who is a black writer. And so she, she wrote a piece, like an op-ed piece for the New York Times called Who Gets to Write What? Mm. And in this piece, she gives us an example about when she was in her MFA program, she had an Asian American classmate, um, who was in the middle of writing a book. And one of the scenes that he had submitted to workshop was this, because uh, this book was focused on the South. And I think about like um, something to do with, I think it's like a murder mystery, I'm not sure. <laughs> but in this book and being based on the South, it's uh, centered around a lot of black characters. And there's a scene in the book where one of the black characters gets lynched. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of like discussion um, in their workshop being like, is is this Asian American classmate of ours who's a writer, is, is he allowed to write, uh, write a lynching scene? And Caitlin Green is saying that, like, you know what, like, um, it isn't about seeking permission about who can or cannot write it, but he wrote it in such a way that was, like, dynamic, that wasn't two-dimensional, that, like, that, like, worked for the story. He did it in a responsible way. And so in that case, it worked. And so, so it, it isn't about, like, who can write what or not, but it's about how you do it, mm-hmm. you know? It isn't about permission, but about whether or not you're doing it justice.
0: And maybe for, you know working as a writer and wearing a tiny sombrero and dismissing people who are criticizing you that's not necessarily a good way to go about it
1: (laughs) right and and I think that like um it really comes down to like you know, like white entitlement and like white fragility uh, and this notion that like she should be allowed to do whatever she wants. And then when she does do it and then she gets called out on it, she's like really upset about it. And there's another piece called What Are White Writers For by Jess Rowe, um, which which is also a really great response. And he is a white writer and he talks about how, um, you know, like like as a white person, as a white writer, like we like people still live in a culture where white people can do whatever they want and they aren't often stopped for it and then when they are challenged by it they get really upset and and then to also ask the question of like examining like what whiteness is in our culture and there's this part that I thought was really um, interesting where he says quote the default position in the Anglo-American literary world for more than a century has been that fiction even if it chronicles the present in minute detail is apolitical huh. so there's this notion that like whiteness is apolitical and that like writing is not political and so his piece is like so good because it's asking questions of like what what's the worth of our writing you know like can is it apolitical and like and what does it mean that we think that like white centered narratives are apolitical it's really challenging like um the notion of like uh like the landscape in which all of these uh, types
0: of work appear so we just talked about white fragility and art and pop culture made by white people that kind of misses the mark. Uh, For our next segment, as a changing gears, we're gonna talk about pop culture uh, that's made by people of color, especially in South Africa. This segment is a special interview with uh, Bitch Media's current global writing fellow, Maneo. She just visited Portland from South Africa last week. If you don't know, Bitch Media has writing fellowships. We offer four paid writing fellowships over the course of the year. And uh, we just closed the applications for next year's fellowships. Oh, my gosh. So many people applied. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, there were uh, over 4,000 people applied for these four spots. Oh, my God. Which is both like, oh, my God. How are the people in charge of the fellowship going to choose four people out of 4,000? But also it's cool because it shows that there's like such a – like so many people are hungry to write about pop culture from feminist perspectives and get paid for it. Like, it makes me feel like, oh, we're part of a of a whole community of people who really want to do this work. That's so exciting. Um, so this interview that we recorded with, with Mineo uh, is, we talk about her being a writing fellow and the work she's been doing. Specifically, she's really excited about web series that are being made in Johannesburg by bunch of queer black women about their lives and experiences um, to kind of push back against the mainstream pop culture of South Africa so here we go do you just want to say say like hi and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are
2: okay Um. so hi (laughs) Uh, my name is Mano Mohale I am from Johannesburg South Africa and I I suppose I'm the not I suppose I am <laughs> the <laughs> I am the twenty sixteen Global Feminism Fellow for Bitch Media. So Cool. Yeah. And tell tell us
0: a little bit about your life in Johannesburg. Like what kind of stuff are you involved in?
2: Yeah. Um, Well, in Johannesburg, I've been involved in a bunch of different stuff, Um, organizing with Johannesburg People's Pride, Um, I worked for an NGO for quite a while um, around public policy and fellowship programs, so, like, organizing and um, program administrating around there. Um, I bake a lot. I love my family. (laughs) Um, And I'm a huge nerd, and I love – I spend most of my time reading and hanging out with my friends and watching jazz, so, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you're our Global Feminism Fellow. That's rad.
2: (laughs) I am the most excited, actually. I am the most excited, Yes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, Amy and I wanted to talk to you about specifically South African web series Mm -hmm. and how... I know you're like a big web series fan, right?
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am, and I... It's so amazing because web series are, are really taking off in Johannesburg right now. Um, not just Johannesburg, but in South Africa generally. And I think that the web and particularly web series and video um, is a medium that feminisms or feminists are using um, to communicate really new ideas, to play around with format, to play around with like art direction and story and narrative and um, videography and stuff, so it's And music and stuff. So it's very cool. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool.
0: How is like what people are making on YouTube in South Africa, what feminists and like queer black feminists are making on YouTube, how is that different than what's on TV in South Africa?
2: Um, I think TV um, or like national TV or or like TV shows, et cetera, are very slow. picking up and talking about social justice issues and feminist issues. So I think that a lot of people have seen the kind of vacuum and seen the silence and seen a a bit of the erasure, actually not a bit of the, a lot of the erasure in in mainstream media, because we're still catching up to um, telling queer stories and telling feminist stories online. So, um, or in like mainstream media. So I think Feminists are like, no, um, we're not going to wait and we're not going to go through mainstream channels to kind of tell our stories. We're just going to tell our own stories and our own way. And it's beautiful. It's super cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this something that um, like mainstream outlets have picked up on and are maybe trying to capitalize on? Have you noticed that at all?
2: In co-opting sort of queer stories? Um... It's slow, but yes, there is a little bit of that. But it's so slow in terms of sort of like TV shows and things. There's still a, a, an element of tokenism. Like there's always that one gay character and it's always kind of um, stereotypical or like overly just like caricaturized. Um, But with, with web series, I think what's beautiful is that... Um, th- the people that are, people that are most marginalised are the ones telling their own stories. So it's not someone else telling a gay story, or someone telling a queer story, or someone telling a, a, a feminist story. It's just like feminist for feminist by feminist sort of vibe, which is gorgeous and awesome and very exciting. Yeah.
0: Here in the United States, we have lots of web series, um, but it can feel kind of siloed. Like you have to mm. seek them out and like know about them in order to even find out about them. Yeah. So they don't necessarily get out to a broader audience. Yes. Does it work the same way in Johannesburg or are there more like web series that everybody watches that everyone's like, oh my God, did you do the last episode of such and such?
2: Um, no, I think it is quite siloed at the moment. Um, but what's ha- helping, or le- at least how I um, got into knowing them is by by like blogs and, and spaces like Bitch or like um, spaces. So there's um, a really great... Um, magazine called okay africa which was started in the diaspora and came now has like an office um, in in johannesburg and um, other homegrown publications like live mag that do like five web series that you should be watching right now and that's where i found out a lot of of the ones that are happening right now so there's more pieces being written about the web series and that's how um they get out to a broader audience Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. so what are some of the web series that you're really excited about that you think that are completely must-watches?
2: Yeah, so there is this super amazing um, web series called Women on Sex, um, and it's about, it's like pretty basic <laughs> like that, <So> it's <laughs> women talking about sex, but also um, I think that there is a kind of prudishness or, or silence or kind of atmosphere, cloud of shame around women's sexuality, and I don't think that that's a South African a uniquely South African problem I think that's just common in any kind of patriarchal society um, but what women on sex does is saying like oh screw that we're just going to actually, we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about issues around sex so the myth of virginity and sexual debuts and talking about um, um, the stigma around and black lesbians in South Africa and the violence um, specifically against black lesbian women um, talking about uh, the tensions between culture and tradition and modernity and whether there are is if that's like a false kind of binary or, or are there more fluid ways to understand sex and tradition um, another one that is I'm, I'm very excited about and I'll be writing about um, as part of my blog series is um, a, a series called the foxy five and that's sort of we were talking about it before but um it's a a a feminist sort of take um on on issues like catcalling etc but with like a stylistic conceptual spin in which there's like five characters and they all have interesting names like women we etc and they're all dressed in like 70s garb and it's all this sort of Spin on on nineteen seventies black movies, so like Shaft, etc. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So, ha- I'm I'm interested in how you feel like these web series are changing the larger, like cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. Like, what has been the impact of these web series, like for you personally, or for your friends, mm-hmm. or in the way that they're shaping media?
2: Mm-hmm. I think for me personally, it's in- immensely affirming, um, and inspiring to to see. Uh, a community of people and a community of, of feminists, um, representing themselves and and inserting themselves in the archive and um, and doing so creatively and in, in interesting ways and funny ways or powerful ways or, or having conversations amongst ourselves. Um, and a lot of them are friends, so it's it's also immensely kind of joyful to see your friends doing amazing things and and going off and. Um, and claiming their corner of the media landscape and the political landscape, which is beautiful, yeah. But I, in terms of like the broader landscape, I think time will have to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, they're being um, profiled by different spaces, but I, it, it hasn't entered that kind of um, space that you were talking about, where everyone is like, "Have you seen the next episode of such?" I, I'm, I'm, I very much look forward to that. That time, yeah.
0: Do you feel like in the future you'll make a web series yourself, or are you focusing on? writing for now and not being on screen?
2: Um, I think that um, I would love to make a web series because um, I think that what's really important right now is to get as many um, stories out there and uh, so that we don't necessarily do the tokenism thing, that this is only one, or, or fall into the trap that there's only one feminist voice mm-hmm. um, because that can get very dangerous very quickly and what um, what I look forward is like a multi-, a, a multi sort of faceted landscape of of feminist voices and that would be the most exciting thing that would happen and if i could include my writing or like push my writing in a way of of like creating a web series i'd love to because that would be a great way to work with new people and meet new people too um
0: do you have any ideas in mind for like a fantasy web series
2: Uh, (laughs) um i think that right now i i really want to um really really want to see interesting queer black narratives and stories that push against stereotypes that push against um ideas that are that are tragic as well because a lot of the times when people represent queerness and blackness it's always in the context of violence which is damaging um and which is which is narrow and um and monolithic and i think that by representing like interesting stories about queerness and blackness, um, and and queer black womanhood, etc., et would be would be gorgeous, and I, I really want to kind of stretch my brain to, to talk about femmes and um, and represent us and and see our many faces on screen, online or not. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that sounds lovely. That sounds like that would be such an amazing show. I would watch that in a <laughs> <five>, heartbeat. <eight. Yeah. laughs>
2: I will keep that in mind. I will get to writing soon. I promise.
0: Coming to your small screen in 2017.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Manea, you
0: were saying that you really
1: love donuts, so I would especially watch it if it was about a bunch of, like, queer black femmes trying to run a donut shop. Oh and, uh, <laughs>
2: yeah oh yes yeah you can have that idea <laughs> que- queer black femmes and, and foodies oh yeah that would be the best even if it was just me and you amy just watching that i would be the most okay the most. let's just do that <laughs> i think
0: there's i think there's a large femme donut loving uh market out there that we really need to tap into good good
2: good then, then i'll get right on that <laughs>
0: all right well thanks so much for coming to Portland and coming to our office
2: thank you thank you for having me
0: so it's the end of the show we always share one thing we read one thing we watched and one thing we heard this week Amy you have a thing you read
1: Yes, yeah, so the thing that I'm reading, I'm still in the process of reading is this book called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America by KSA Lehman. Full disclosure, KSA Lehman is my professor. <laughs> uh, but is he going to is he going to listen to this podcast and give you a grade or what? I'm like at 99.999% he doesn't listen to this podcast. Um so this is not like a a a teacher's pet move, but uh, but I, I've been a big fan of KSA's work for a long time and um, finally I picked this book up from the library at school. Um, so this is a, a, a really like moving collection of essays that center his, his own experiences growing up as a black boy in Mississippi and then finally as, like, as a black man who's like who leaves Mississippi and living elsewhere like in New York City or in Oberlin, Ohio when he was doing his undergrad. Um, it's really, like, a, a very candid look, and, like, he likes to use the word reckoning, you know? Hmm. And so it's, like, he's, like, reckoning with his own truths. And it, it so far, I'm, like, half, about halfway through it. It really feels like a love letter and, a, like, a confessional huh. to the place where he came from and to his younger self, like, kind of, like, being somewhat forgiving, but also, like, understanding, like, where he came from. Um, but it's, it's a short volume, but it's, like, it's so good, and it, it really gives, like, this perspective about, like... Um, as somebody coming from the south as as a black person living coming from the south um it's a, i think it's such a, a a moving read and people should check it out
0: what's what's the full title
1: again how to slowly kill yourself and others in america
0: wow okay i'll look that up too um let's see you have you're watching a lot of tv Oh my god! (laughs) I'm watching that on a lot of Netflix. So uh, I think tons of people are talking about the
1: new Luke Cage series uh, that came out on Netflix. And it's about, you know, like uh, another reluctant Marvel superhero. Um, So he's like, he's bulletproof and has like super strength um but so there's like it's part of me where I'm watching it so even though like Luke Cage is shown as being like indestructible there's definitely there's this part where I feel I have like weird feelings watching him being shot like multiple times even if the bullets are being deflected his body and he's like theoretically in harm but I can see that for other folks who are watching it it can feel like empowering that's like my one of my one little flag about red flag about it for me while I would as a viewer but I mean this this show is like really fun and like I'm I'm not that big in to like superhero narratives you know that um but this one is like it's interesting because it's not like super super superhero-y i haven't seen one cape yet (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and it stars like a majority black cast and i'm really because i'm I'm almost done with it but i'm really looking forward to like learning more about the characters um and the characters backgrounds and to see that they're not like all two-dimensional people who are either like all good or all bad and like what how their backgrounds influences um how their behavior is now
0: does the show talk about police violence and corruption and that sort of thing? Because no. I, mean, I feel like if you have a sh- oh, uh, yeah. not, not not in that way. It, it it does um it does kind
1: of pit like the this police department um against like against Luke Cage against like this like um this crime ring. So there's like this triangle of like uh you know uh corruption. But the corruption is is less about like police violence against like black bodies and more about like um. Uh, Spoil. I don't want to do spoiler alerts, but so, but it, there is like some weird corruption angle, but it isn't about. It isn't centered around police violence necessarily. So it isn't like dealing with us, which is like I think is interesting. Um, but like as a non-black person, it's hard for me to like say what what like a black viewer would feel about it.
0: Um, I haven't watched that show yet, and I really want to. Um, Luke Cage showed up in Jessica Jones in the last Netflix series that I I, I loved, and I loved his character in there, so I'm excited to watch the series. At some point when I get, like, 20 free hours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there are also, like, a lot of um, black women characters in this, which is really great to see them all on screen, and they're all, like, uh, and and in their characters, they're all, like, professional women, not doing any, like, you know not having just like secondary types of roles and then rosario dawson who also showed up um and jessica jones what yes she I, I don't know if it's a spoiler but she does appear <laughs> in luke cage and i was like cool, yes i need more rosario dawson in my
0: life <laughs> that's great okay we'll close up the show with one thing i heard which is this new album by the artist jenny i don't know how you say her last name jenny h-v-a-l um She's a kind of an experimental electro pop artist, and her new album is a menstruation concept album. (laughs) (laughs) When I read when when I got the press release for it, I was like, "Yes, send me this album." Um, It just dropped last week, and it's called Blood Bitch, and it's all every single song is about menstruation, and it's kind of a spooky good album for halloween she kind of imagines herself as a vampire it seems like and does a lot of like vampire blood imagery um this is a song off the album blood bitch look it up jenny hval someday i'll learn how to say her name thanks amy thank you Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and
2: donate.